I like that you uh, that you tweeted questions into Twitter about what we should talk about because I don't know I don't know about you I feel I felt going into this kind of even especially after the last one uh, which was sort of heavy right but everything's kind of been heavy since <laughs> since this nonsense started yeah. um, you know I we we almost recorded last week I think we at least talked about it and then it fell through because I don't know. Neither of us were like, oh, boy, I got something I really want to talk about. And then, I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking for myself. I think it's because I had a mild sore throat. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. But you're good now. Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. Maybe you are. Maybe you are. You know, it's funny. I was actually thinking about this. The last, when uh, when Ben was here and you were sneezing into the microphone, uh, oh. I... At the beginning, I, I then washed it, and it was still sort of a joke to me. I was like, "Oh, you know, oh, Shadi sneezing into the microphone." Or- yeah, because that's before it really got bad when we recorded that episode. That right. was really early on, super early. And yeah. now you're not sneezing into the microphone. And I'm going to disinfect the hell out of it. <laughs> okay. Um. Oh, you know. Okay. So on Twitter, I was, as you said, I was kind of putting it out there. What What do our listeners want us to talk about? And um, the one thing that I'm actually angry about now, and I actually, I had to sort of control myself um, before this, was the whole debate over the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones. (laughs) Because we started that Twitter debate. I don't even know how it started yesterday. And it actually, I'm not even joking, really. It actually bothers me. When people talk trash about the Beatles, yeah. So um, a, a, a friend, um, I don't know him so well, but I didn't know he didn't like the Beatles. He was actually saying that the Beatles have mediocre songs, and I'm like, what? It's okay if you don't like the Beatles, but to take it one step further and say that they have mediocre songs, and he even said he went. Even a step further than that, he said, some of their songs are quote-unquote absolutely awful. I'm like, hey, man, I want you to cite me specific songs from specific albums that you consider to be awful. And I was like, how am I going to talk to Demir? How am I going to do this podcast with this weighing on me? Yeah. Because it shows like if people oh, – I don't – I have to okay, – Yeah. Let's, let's – Well, okay. So, so let me like, – I think we can work this out reasonably quickly because I'm not saying the Beatles are like bad at their craft or anything like that. You know what I thought after our little debate? You didn't like the Tarantino movie, did you? The the last one, movie? the most recent one. So I've never seen much Tarantino. The only thing I've seen is Pulp Fiction. All I wanted to say is the reason I love that movie is the same reason I hate the Beatles. <laughs> like, and, 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 and it's because, it's because that movie channels that, that my, my disdain for that period in so, so well that, and, and really you can't, you can't really talk about the, the, uh, that aspect of the sixties, which I think Tarantino is really zeroing in on without really dwelling on, on the joke that is, John Lennon and and Yoko and all the the excesses and, and silliness of that and again the the whole sort of all the the stuff that attaches itself to the Beatles that that cult of the sixties that that we were on the cusp of something um, and then we lost it when they gunned down John like okay but okay these are different time no, periods man they gunned down John I know that's later yeah look <laughs> but still uh, it's it's uh, what I'm actually thinking of is we as 
you know, as we sort of riff on this is, is, uh, um, okay. So there's two sixties. Yeah. Uh, and to me, they really do map onto the Beatles versus the stones and, you know, in the stones camp, there's sort of, uh, even that sort of like Hunter Thompson thing. Have you, have you read uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas? Ever? No, I haven't. Have you seen the movie with Johnny Depp? No. Okay. Well, both good. Wait, uh, wasn't there something with Nicolas Cage, or was that Leaving Las Vegas? That's Leaving Las Vegas. Okay. Yeah. Fear and Loathing. It's, so Hunter Thompson, you know, journalist, gonzo guy, yeah. um, uh, did a lot of drugs, uh, and his whole sort of reporting style was this hyper first person, you know, so subjective, almost stream of consciousness yeah. stuff, and he's messed up on drugs all the time. That's a really moving passage, I think, about about the 60s in, in Fear and Loathing, where he talks about, you know, basically in terms that most um, Beatles uh, fanatics who also love the 60s for what they represented, the potential, uh, Thompson channels that in his beautiful passage, talks about, you know, the, uh, I forget the words now, it's been so long since I've read it, but, mm. you know, that, that the waters reached a high water mark, and if you squint in the right kind of light, you can see where the wave broke and receded never to come back. And that's him oh, sort yeah. of eulogizing the 60s. He's in the 70s writing this. Um, and it's just like this, this you know, uh, uh, horrific trip uh, that he's on. He's on all sorts of drugs and he's doing this like story, this crappy mm. story for in Las Vegas. In any case, um, what I love about the Stones is that they represent uh, what I think is actually just a, a truer – um, and more authentic sort of uh, uh, depiction of the 60s or an experience of the 60s. Whereas whereas uh, the Beatles to me are, however talented they are as musicians, and I would never say they have bad songs, but I hate the Beatles like I hate the 60s. <laughs> and that's what I mean by I hate the Beatles. Now, I mean, if you want to talk about me being angry, this idea that you're you're comparing them to Bach and Mozart, that's preposterous and on a whole different <laughs> register. And another another listener asked me to take you to task on that on Twitter. But so I I, I, I hereby take you to task for that. That's a preposterous thing well, to Demir, say. Let me challenge you. I think there's a misconception that the Beatles were all about love, peace, and understanding and this sense of possibility and optimism. If you actually dig deep in their catalog, there is darkness. I mean, let's not forget that Charles Manson, sure. the murderer cult leader, actually claimed the the song Helter Skelter is sure. one of his inspirations. Helter Skelter isn't necessarily – it's a very aggressive – and some people even say that Helter Skelter was the first metal song. Mm. Um but if you look at some of John Lennon's stuff after he started getting a little bit, you know, in his own head, that's that's some dark stuff. Mm, mm. So yes, there was all you need is love. Yeah, but there was also um, let me think. <laughs> okay, take my word for it. No, there was dark sure. Stuff. Again, I I don't have to take your word for it. I'll even grant it. And I, one I, of the greatest critiques of tax collection and high tax rates was mm -hmm. actually the song "Tax Man." Right. Off of Revolver. Actually, sure. George Harrison wrote that one. Um, there's a really interesting line uh, about the tax man coming. Um, there's, uh, the tax man is saying, I guess, to George Harrison, there's one for you, 19 for me, referring to the 95% marginal tax rate at the very high level 
um, which is, you know, anyway, um, I don't see so you do care about politics still because <laughs> <laughs> this is the other thing. The only other thing I really wanted to talk to you about is, is, uh, is your piece in the Atlantic and, and, uh, and yeah, you know, just yeah. sort of go back and forth a little bit about that. Yes. Cause you had, you'd outlined that in the last episode, uh, at least sort of where you were heading with it. I mean, I don't think you were, you were fully there. You're still working through some stuff. I think the last time we were yeah, tell me what you, th- cause, um, it's interesting cause I think I had written, a, a few paragraphs of that essay. You sent them to me, and I sent them to you. But I, then I wrote the rest of it after our last episode. I, 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 I yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I thought. I mean, I, I recognized the paragraphs that I'd read before, and I, I it was interesting to sort of uh, try and pick out our conversation and parts yeah. of it. Um, but tell me, how, how's how's the feedback been on that? Why don't you tell me a little bit about that, and then I have some sort of thoughts and questions. Um. One problem is that, uh, as I'm always reminded, some people read the headline and then comment on the headline. Sure. Did you write the headline or did uh, did the Atlantic uh, do it no, this Atlantic time? Did, but I, I was fine with it. I actually thought it was a catchy headline. The headline was something like, the coronavirus killed the revolution. Right. I mean, a little bit provocative. Um, it's definitely going to get people a little bit riled up, especially if they like the revolution and right. don't want it to be killed. Right. Um, but, you know, that was part of the argument that I was making that um, in, a, in a kind of counterintuitive way, revolutions, there is this presumption, I think, that a lot of people had and still have that socialist, rev- socialist in quotation marks, socialist revolution, Medicare for all, that all these things will be more possible because of this virus crisis. Right which I think is actually getting it wrong because um, what people also crave in times of crisis when they feel an existential threat is stability, security, and normalcy. Yeah. And there's a craving for that. And in some sense, people, yeah, people want good health care, but they also don't want to do experimental politics. They don't want to try something brand new. They don't want to have a four-year, you know, social democratic experiment that really challenges a lot of the status quo because what they really want is just for things to be good and competent. They want solid technocratic leadership. They want normal lives. They want experts who will get shit done. So that's some of what I was arguing the piece. And I, and I also try to tell people I'm not making a normative argument this pains me. I wish it were otherwise. I I was a Bernie supporter. I still am a Bernie supporter. I'm just trying to remove myself a little bit from the moment and take a step back and analyze and assess. It doesn't mean that I want this to be the case. Yeah, I, I that I think that was a tension in the piece. And and you know if if uh, if the, our last episode sort of filtered into the piece, at least the sort of mood in that last one, um, there was a sort of a like a it was heavy, right? And a sense of 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 this stuff is heavy, and um, in a way that it's erasing all of this stuff. I guess the the thing that jumped out at me in the piece is just what you alluded to at the last and your last little description here that that um, uh, on the one hand you were you were. You say you're doing analysis, but I just actually reread it just now again <laughs> before this. But you were you were you were you were you were doing a lot of self in there, and and what struck me in the piece 
is that you yourself seem to have been to a certain extent saying that politics are less important right now. That's not an analytical statement. It was it was an a personal statement I thought um, about about how you're experiencing things and and um, and your priorities. I mean, I, I thought it was a very personal essay. There was a lot of you. I mean, you you that is one of your I think trademarks as a writer is there's a lot of you in your essays all the time. You're always approaching it from yourself. It's to your credit. Um, it's part of your voice, but it's it it struck me in this one, um, maybe because it was such a uh, almost a rejection of politics. And why that jumped out at me so much is that uh, you and I have talked at length before about about you know the the ultimate primacy of politics in in so many ways. And here you are saying basically uh, no, uh, done with that, not done with that. I mean, again, I'm not. I don't want to oversimplify your your point um you're not saying that but but to a certain extent you're resigning yourself to a kind of post-political uh time through analyzing yourself you've you've identified something like a post-political time i don't know you I, that's I, a real okay uh you read it just now i haven't read it in a few days if not a week yeah uh, it sure. came out last week so i am i want to just cite one one little part of it, which I think gets at what what you're talking about. And let me try to see if I can make sense of it in real time. So um, somewhat self-indulgently, I'm That's about fine. to quote myself. Yeah, go ahead. Quote away. <laughs> According to <Yeah>. me, <laughs> I, I for one have changed. I am more willing to accept mere normalcy today than I was just a month ago. Some of this has to do with the idiosyncrasies of individual personalities and how each of us copes with crisis. I'm too tired and too afraid to believe in the promise of politics right now. What I do feel instead is the smallness of politics. Yeah. Yeah. So let me let me try to let me try to do that. Okay. Um because writing for me is a personal thing, I can't help how I feel in a particular moment. So I have my political and ideological commitments at any given time, and I still have them. In, in some sense, they haven't changed that much. But what I was really trying to capture there was the experience of living through this unusual historical moment has made me feel a particular way and the personal can't help but inform how I write and how I think. So that just so what I just read there is literally how I've been feeling that there is a smallness of politics. Do I want to have a debate about um, whether socialism is the future? Do I do I think that? I don't know. Do you, you know? Do you know what I mean? Like, in a sense, of course, that comes through clear. That's what you're saying. That's there's no ambiguity there. I'm just, I guess, I'm surprised, given, um, you know, just talking, just going back to to writers like, you know, Carl uh, Schmidt inspired Chantal Mouffe. Like, I mean, the 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 role of politics in that. Let's not like nerd out too deep into into the theory stuff, but I think it's important because it it has underlined a lot of, you know, I think the ground we share on this sort of stuff is that, you know, uh, it's a mistake to think that, you know, this this politics goes away. And I'll just say for myself, 
before I let you, you know, uh, mm. tackle that a bit. Um, I guess I've been coping differently. I feel like I, my, my, I, I've, I've not been able to really write. I've had a lot of trouble reading. Um, but my little sort of bits of, of, of mental energy, uh, have been, uh, devoted to and trying to unpack and pick apart, um, what this is doing to our politics and how this is reshaping these things. I, 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 I don't know. I, I, it, it, it strikes me as, as much as before that talk of, of, um, you know, Again, and we can talk about the importance of competence, right? I, I, there's a whole a whole sidebar we can talk about that. Uh, my colleague, uh, your well, not stablemate at the Atlantic, but you know the Atlantic published Frank Fukuyama's essay talking about it's not authoritarianism versus democracy; it's state capacity, and just sort of um, uh, that what we're talking about is the ability of states to get things done. America's falling down on the job in a lot of ways like this, and it's not. You know, South Korea and China on the one hand, and again, we can bracket what China really happened in China, but on the one hand, and you have, you know, Italy and, and Iran on the other. Uh, and so it's not, it's not the, the type of, of thing. I guess still what I'm getting at is, is, um, grant, I grant you the idea that, that there's an, a certain kind of appeal to competence, um, that this brings about and it makes us question, a lot of uh, things that we maybe thought were muddle throughable before with the status quo ante, um, but I certainly don't feel like politics is going away. I mean, I, I've I, I think in chats I don't think we talked about it last time, but maybe we did. I I I, I see like the the emerging political split is a, around the lines of what I was talking about last time, which is um, that uh, you know Republicans are still lining up to a certain extent on a uh, putting more weight on the economic side of things, whereas Democrats are lining up uh, on the purely on the epidemiolo- epidemiological side uh, with, uh, well, new Democrats like Jen uh, Rubin writing that, um, uh, right, that, uh, what's his name, uh, that Trump, you know, has killed X number of people with that, <laughs> With that, with that formula, and I mean that—that's—that's that's the sort of left attack on this. So everything's still politicized. I don't see, um, I don't see that having gone away. Uh, go ahead, react to that because I've got—I've yeah, got, I've got sure. a lot okay. more on yeah, that. Yeah, that's good. Um, so when I did reread my piece, I felt the tension, hmm. and I had trouble actually figuring out how best to promote the piece on social media. Because I wasn't 100% sure exactly what I was trying to say. And even now, I'm not 100% sure exactly what I'm trying to say. But that's one of the reasons that I I like to write more exploratory um, essays like that because it offers me an opportunity to try to work through my own conflicting feelings. And I'm still conflicted. So that's one thing. I will always believe in the political. And I want to return to the political after this crisis ends. So what I'm saying here is that there might be a temporary moment where that isn't as important to me. 
it will still be important to other people and I want to return to it and I can't wait to get back into full-on ideological combat. I just don't know if that's what I'm thrilled about at this particular moment. And that could be for a month, it could be for two months, four months, whatever. So it's definitely temporary though. And don't get me wrong, I'm still angry about things and I still get in Twitter fights and I still... um, And I've always had a kind of discomfort with the smallness of partisan politics. And that's one reason that I was never a fan of the impeachment stuff and that whole debate. And I found that, and I think that's even looking back, the fact that just a couple months ago, we were having what I think was a pretty silly uh, debate about, um, I don't even know what that was. And it feels like looking now, I would, I think that, I don't want to say I was proven right um, or whatever, but does it seem even smaller today than we, than it seemed three months ago when we had our last episode about the impeachment trial? Yes, it seems even smaller today. Impeach, Trump was not existential then. Impeachment was not an existential debate. American democracy was not at risk of ending or being canceled three or four months ago. And it was silly that we were, that that was a smaller time. If people want to make those arguments now, yes, in some sense, we are facing um, a much more existential moment now, right? Okay. Um, so, but to, to mention, you mentioned uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post. She had this tweet which I got really angry about last night. Pretty much she had an equation that um, death toll from coronavirus minus the people that the U.S. government could have saved if it acted early on and wasn't outrageously incompetent equals the Trump death toll. So she's essentially saying that Trump... In, in effect, is responsible for death, for the things that he did. As if she couldn't, she she and many others are going back to this obsession about Trump that matters of life and death can be reduced to the decisions of one man. As if there aren't other countries like Italy or Spain that have a similar or perhaps a worse curve than us and they don't have Trump to blame. And when we're looking at New York, the epicenter of of the mounting deaths and the crisis more generally, can we really blame Trump for that? No, some of that has to do with Bill de Blasio. I mean, so I, I just think there's something very small-minded of saying that a president can have blood on his hands, that he, that he himself... There's also a question of intent to kill versus incompetence that leads to killing. Obviously, for those who die and for their loved ones and for all of us as Americans who care about um, our fellow Americans who are dying, and all of us all of us know one degree or two degrees people who have um, coronavirus. So this is not like we can't – this is all in some sense personal to us. This is our country, and these are our fellow Americans. But – to say that Trump is basically killing, like in some sense, he is directly responsible for death. 
there's questions around moral, moral and political philosophy about what it means to be responsible for killing. Yeah. And, um, and I don't, I also don't like, and this is not, I don't want to name names and I'm just, I'm making a, a broader observation. The glee or the apparent glee that some people have when they talk about the expected death tolls that Trump, you know, it will be on Trump's watch that 200,000 people will have died. Okay, that's possible, and that's one of the um, one of the estimates that you know, well-respected, epi, 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 whatever, epi what, yeah, or Anthony Fauci has even said hundred thousand to two hundred thousand, but it's so we're at about five to five thousand or fifty-five hundred dead now to almost get ahead of yourself and to say that this is already basically happening. We don't know. I mean, there are a lot of variables to go from 5,500 to 200,000 people killed. And we should all as Americans be praying, hoping, wanting it to be much less than that. And there's almost a kind of, well, oh, we'll, we'll say to Trump, we told you so when it gets to 200,000. And yeah, see, he's going to be, it's his fault. He's going to be responsible. And I just find this to be, there's something very off-putting and I think even morally uh, morally problematic, morally even offensive, if we wish to take offense, that this kind of language is being used really early on in what, in, in what is a complex, multivariable process. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes sense. I just, you know, my immediate response as you're saying, it's like, yeah, well, guess what? Politics is still... Is still very much in play. But it's not the kind of politics that we talk about in this podcast. Um, it's a it's a silly and small politics. Well, again, silly and small. You said you know you said that everything now seems silly and small to you back then, and and et cetera, et cetera. But it's it's part and parcel of the exact same thing. Now, again, I here let me let me complicate it a little bit for you. Um, I I I I think. Jen Rubin's tweet was, uh, yeah, I had similar sort of distaste for it. Um, uh, I'm in general, from a moral standpoint, I recoil from this idea of counting bodies. I don't like it. I don't like it in questions of uh, uh, humanitarian intervention. I don't like it when it comes to these sorts of crises. I think you know, trying to quantify the costs in terms of human lives is a is a it's a, it leads you into really weird places because at some point you're you're doing cost benefit analysis on that, and I think. I, I I just recoil from that. I think it's it's a it's a terrible it's a terrible little uh, cul-de-sac to get into. Um, that said, uh, I I I do think, as we debated in previous uh, um, podcasts, that while while the uh, the impeachment was uh, clearly a foregone foregone conclusion from the beginning that this is how it would play out. I still thought, and I still think it's fine. Put the marker down. I, I don't understand some of the machinations of why, what, what advantage Nancy Pelosi thought she was playing at. Like there's going to pull some sort of rabbit out of the hat and all that sort of stuff. She should have taken the loss in the face immediately and just put the marker and moved on to the elections. That's my belief, and I don't think it's that small because, quite frankly, the thing we are seeing with Trump is the costs of having a um, a buffoonish man running the federal government, uh, a federal government that is understaffed 
But what because, does that have to do with impeachment? I mean, no, no, no. Hold separate. on. All I, but all I'm getting at is that, like, it's part and parcel of the same thing. It's like, in in the sense, here's here's how I I damn the Democrats right now. I think I think they're they're on the one hand uh, their uh, approach uh, to screaming about uh, you know mitigation above all else. Uh, on the one hand, I think is somewhat calculated. I don't think it's 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 fully. It's fully sincere because I do think that uh, they are lining up this sort of humanitarian catastrophe. What they don't see, which is what the Republicans are lining up, and this is why I think the political perspective is important. They don't see the, the, the way this is playing out on the other side among Republicans, and they're lining up the economy um, as uh, – or at least they were as something that, that – uh, um, you know, would be exculpating. They, they, they were going to set themselves up as the party that wanted America to get back into business and blah, blah, blah. You know, pointy-headed elites were keeping are going to keep people locked down. And there, there's your boogeyman on the right, basically. Why the coming uh, economic catastrophe, and I even more so than two weeks ago when we recorded it, I think we're headed for potentially seriously dark shit right now uh, on the economy. Um, uh, they were setting it up. Now, if I take a step back and look at where we are right now, uh, Trump has now come along to the idea that, you know, uh, this needs to be mitigated in many ways. And, and he's come come around to sort of a more mainstream, uh, epidemiologically expert informed approach to things. Um, and as a result, he's going to own the coming uh, economic catastrophe. My feeling is that's what's going to bring Trump down, is that the depths of this recession are what's going to hurt him, not this nonsense that, that Jen Rubin is, is tweeting about, this sort of heartfelt, uh, heartstring-pulling stuff. So I damn her for being cynical, because that's what it is. It's dirty cynicism. And I think most Democrats can be damned by that, on that, on that hill. Uh, but I think Trump's screwed, because I think we're headed to like a truly, truly deep, dark thing. I really hope I'm wrong it's on the economy. It's interesting you because I actually think that Trump has a better chance of being reelected. But, you know, it's Who probably, we, yeah. you know, that, that could be a conversation for another time. But, you know, what, what I do think is interesting is that if we look at most of the Western democracies dealing with coronavirus, all of them are doing pretty bad to various degrees, but it's not as if the U.S. is doing much worse than other countries in terms of the direction of the curve. Sure. So what that that raises an interesting set of questions that there is a limit to human agency. There's a limit to what competency can actually do. We want to feel that we have someone we can trust in power who is competent, and that's what makes us nervous about Trump because we feel like, wait, this is the guy who's really running this shit? Yeah. But if you look, I'm, I'm surprised that Jennifer Rubin and others don't bring up two very interesting counter cases that very few people are bringing up, which is Sweden yep. and the Netherlands. Yep. Sweden is doing Trump times five. Yes. And maybe they're starting to do more regulations now, but basically up until I think it might even still be the case, the bars and restaurants are still open. People are still going out. Maybe it's changed literally yesterday. I haven't, I'm not totally up to speed. But Sweden is doing a very bizarre experiment. And I saw something earlier that more and more Swedish citizens are saying, wait a second here. 
why is the government like literally playing with our lives? Why you know, are we the outliers? Right. Yeah. But it, it's an interesting because Sweden has a reputation for competence, technocracy, for a strong, you know, a very impressive public health system. Yet they are going on a very different path. And then the Netherlands is sort of in between um, lockdown and Sweden. They're, they have um, they haven't gone like full lockdown the way that much of the rest of Europe has gone. So is this about Trump or is this about how different Western democracies have responded very differently for reasons that have nothing to do with whether or not you have a Trump-like figure in power? Yeah. Does that make sense? It sure does. Look, I guess let me let me then sharpen my my uh, uh, pushback on on your I think you know uh, honest and, and deeply felt uh, fatigue with politics on this. I I I I I can only read all of this commentary in terms of politics. Now, your disgust with Jen Rubin, I think, is anchored in this idea that. Oh my God, she's playing politics with it. I look at her, I'm like, of course she's playing politics. That's all she knows how to do. And all of this is politics. Every last bit of it. You're you're yearning for something else. But let I, me, yeah, I, let me just yeah. say what I'm mm-hmm. yearning for. In, in you know, because I guess I haven't really expressed that clearly. What I am yearning for, or what I want, I think the fact that Trump is doing this, as I as I just mentioned, it it makes me really nervous. I think all of a lot of us, most of us, feel that way. Good lord. But I really want Trump to succeed. I want him to get better. I want him to listen to the experts. I want us as a country to not make this about partisan divides. That's sort of where I think I come out a little bit differently than a lot of folks on the center left and left. I am perfectly fine with the idea of Trump succeeding because this is about our country. Um, so that's why I have this idea that if there's anything that can that can foment or fashion a kind of mild nationalism, I would want it to be this common enemy of the coronavirus or this common... Okay, I, I have to be careful about this. Let me think how I should put this. this common enemy of the Chinese <laughs> Wuhan virus. Yeah, I know, what you, I know where you're headed. No, look. Do I think that the the idea of the and let me be very clear, and I, I did try to be very clear in my previous Atlantic piece, which was about the Chinese regime being directly to blame. Do I think that we as Americans can find some of this mild ideological nationalism, not ethnic? And this is I've, I've never, I'm of course as as no one should no one should suspect otherwise. I, I'm a vocal opponent of anything that goes in the direction of ethnic nationalism. But can there be a mild Americanism, a mild ideological nationalism where we as Americans come together because there are bigger enemies? One, obviously a virus, a common enemy that we all share now in this country, but also being aware that the Chinese regime is directly to blame for the fact that we as Americans are in such dire straits. So that to me shows the promise of a kind of coming together. Obviously, that's probably not going to happen. But, you know, I think if you're not a very political person, there is a sense that we as Americans share something. There is a sense of solidarity. And we did talk about this last time 
when you saw the Italians singing in the balconies, they're like, hey, we're in this together. At some basic level in this country, in this Italy, we are all tied together and our healthcare system, whether it does well or does less well, is going to affect in some way or another the people that we care about or the people that we know. So when I think about where we're at or where we're going to be, I think about the importance of solidarity, that it can never be about being angry about angry towards folks in Idaho or Montana because they have a bad Republican governor because ultimately this is our country. Does that – I mean that's a little bit sentimental, I know. No, of course. It makes sense. Look, and, and you're not going to find me disagreeing with any of that. Um, I – you know, I'm – not sure who you'd find uh, able no, to do there are a lot of people who are I okay mean, I, well so so I, I love this I mean so when people are attacking America and saying that I mean, yeah. look how bad America is in dealing with this crisis if only we could be more like China or God knows who else and I'm like look when we are under attack quite literally um, from a virus I I Nothing will ever make me think differently about how much I love this country. Sure. And there there are people who are saying that, oh, we are we are bad, we are weak. Why can't we be more like other countries and authoritarian countries? So and look, Max Fisher, I don't wanna Max Fisher is someone who I've been friendly about and I respect him. And I don't Good good on you. <laughs> No, look, Max Max writes some good stuff, mm-hmm. but sometimes I disagree with him. And it's not a personal thing. It's just we have a difference of opinion yeah. on on certain ways of looking at the world. And I don't want him to think that I'm attacking him personally because I know that he's trying to find his own way through this. I just disagree with it. The fact that he would say that we can learn something from the China the China model of dealing with this, I mean, I just don't I don't understand how we as Americans can look to China and ever think of them as a model or ever think that that's what we should try to replicate in our own country. God for, I mean, I just, I don't get this lack of faith in who we are. Yeah. So look, I, this is a good segue into where, where I'd like to go next. Uh, um, Max Fisher's at the Times, right? He got yeah. hired from Vox. Is that right? That guy? He was at Vox a while back before that. He was actually my editor at Atlantic many years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So you know him personally. I don't. I just remember um, – I, I remember he got some flack for some nonsense in, in Vox at some point. And the, the only came to my attention when he, I think, did the stupidest explainer ever in the New York Times about nationalism. I, I used it as a as a foil and pivot in one of my recent essays on nationalism. But it was just it was it, it exemplified everything I, I dislike. And let, let's talk about it some more because it's it's yeah yeah sure we're all trying to figure our way. And I, I don't I'm not making this personal. I don't know Max whatever. But he does exemplify a certain kind of problem, which I I, I have to say I'm you know I mean obviously I I, I know you pretty well at this point, so I, I wasn't really <laughs> concerned. But I think I, I was trying to get at this at the last podcast. And uh, I, maybe I have like a, a sharper way to put it now to sort of get to the point. I, I think the, the, the main problem with the depoliticization or at least the pose, the hope to transcend all of this and get back to some, something better, something that unites, et cetera. Again, I'm not I'm – not, you know that I'm not against nationalism. I'm not against this idea of coming up with a unifying thing. I think that if you deny that, you're, you just don't understand the world on a very fundamental way. Yeah, and – 
these are all criticisms that I level at, at, at Max Fisher and his ilk. But but you know what it is? It's it's if you are if you are idealizing so many things and and sort of pulling back from the the core premise that it's all politics on some level, um, you uh, it 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 it. it draws you and tends to pull you into a kind of idealism. You know, now it's funny. We're, I don't know how long, uh, almost two-thirds of the way through this thing. Um, and I, 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 it occurs to me, like, that this is why I kind of hate the Beatles. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's the idealism of it. Or not the Beatles. Let's say the 60s. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the kind of idealism of it because it, it breeds a kind of 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 really bad view of the world, which entails a certain kind of well anti-Americanism in this case. Um, so there's an essay by Mike McFall in the Washington Post came out recently, unobjectionable mostly, but it 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 pointed me to something that I think is also emerging. Um, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, don't need to even debate it. I think on, on the specifics, there's not that much to talk. It's, it's, it's a pretty generic sort of uh, piece of writing. It's one, uh, it's of a piece of all these things saying like, we need to work together on a global level, even with China, with whom he acknowledges very carefully and diligently. We have lots of differences. We have ideological differences there. We recognize they're a bad thing, but you know, in times of crisis, we need to work together. Underlying that is Again, this kind of optimism, this kind of trans-political, apolitical, super-political hope in something called multilateralism. You saw this kind of stuff emerging in a big way in the last three and a half years under Trump. You saw it in Europe a lot. You got like a bunch of think pieces, more than I can count, about, you know, a multilateralism of middle powers. This was one idea that kept getting bandied about. Mm. Well, America's abandoning the field. Well, all the smaller democracies will be able to do this and we'll pull through and keep the promise of multilateralism alive. As if multilateralism is some kind of value in and of itself that exists out in the world in and of itself, and we have to realize it by clinging to our values first. This is this kind of idealism about the primacy of holy values that then, if America falls short on something like this, we are a bad country, we are evil. And this is that kind of transcending politics stuff. This is that kind of idealizing of things. And guess what? I'm... 100% certain that this is where the Democrats are going to be on foreign policy, on all sorts of things, is a values first, forward leaning, you know, sort of thing where where multilateralism is a good in and of itself. And, you know, an America that does not bow down to this value of multilateralism is an evil actor to a certain extent. Mm. They'll never put it that way. The horror of Trump, in my estimation, is that he has taken Republicans to way past the point of respectability on skepticism of um, multilateralism and, and all these sorts of things to the point where it's like a, a kind of relativism where it says like, you know, every country for itself, we're the biggest, we're just going to use our sharp elbows to get what's ours. It's a stupid way to look at the world on, on, a, on a very profound level. Um, however, the opposite, the thing that mm. he's induced more in Democrats right now, which is like we are a fallen country and we have to recommit to the values of multilateralism is equally – and even I would, I would go – maybe this is just because of my, you know, uh, my priors and you know them well enough right now. But I think that's, that's a, a more dangerous and more evil kind of stupidity than what Trump is doing. 
the, 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 Wait, the, sorry, what's a more evil, stupid deed? Committing to multilateralism a priori and saying if, if we don't if we don't commit to these values, this is this is this is the the failing and and uh, uh, yeah, the sure, fallenness multi, of us. Multilateralism is a means, not an end in in of itself. The idea that I mean, mul- I, I well, here let me let me just finish the thought. Yeah, yeah, and this please, is it. Yeah. It's it's that the reality is multilateralism only exists under a system. Uh, that is uh, under sort of broad American hegemony, and the values flow out from this because this is how America is. America is committed to a certain set of liberal values that um, it enforces as a set of norms when it is top dog. And, you know, a multilateralism based on nothing except on a set of, you know, values and no ability to basically, you know, uh, shape the world which is what this idea of a multilateralism of middle powers, it's a preposterous thing. And what you see basically is the, the, the struggles of the European Union to do anything, to come together, are basically the product of what you have of a multilateralism of middle powers. The only reason the European Union exists at all today is because the United States was there to basically shepherd it along. The troubles that it faces are as the United States recedes from the world and creates this sort of thing, they're unable to pull it together. They've never been able to pull it together. Um, it can only exist in a world that's ordered by the United States. Okay, now that's a whole lot. I've gone on for a very long time. So there's a bunch of chum for you to, to, to chew on. But that to me is – it's that it's that idealism hmm. which is dangerous, I think. And, that's, and, and to me, I identify that hmm. with this yearning that I think, again, finds honest expression in your piece about this let's transcend, etc. It's not that different from – the impulse of someone like Max Fisher writing about nationalism and saying it's just a construct and we as humanity need to transcend it. I think I think that if you if you put yourself in that frame, you are fundamentally misunderstanding the world. Yes. Okay. Well, first thing I'll say is I don't want to transcend nationalism. Why is it something that needs to be transcended? Um, and this is this is something that I you know I part ways with some of my um, comrades on the left on this is or many of them I suppose is I'm I'm an idealist as you know Demir but I'm also very consciously aware almost at every moment of what I do of the brokenness of the brokenness of who we are, we're weak, we're, we're, um, there's only so much we can aspire to. Um, we can't aspire to this universalism because we are fallen and broken by sin. And I mean sin here, perhaps in a more metaphorical sense. Um, and that's why one thing I mentioned in my piece is what are the concentric circles of allegiance that ultimately matter and one thing, and we talked about this also last time, I realized more than ever, as if I needed reminding, that, you know, your family, your friends, your close friends, and then you kind of go outward from that to the nation. I don't have, like, when I think about what's really important to me, only later do I think about the uni- the universality or or like this global camaraderie or whatever it is? I'm sorry. I mean, that's not the most important thing to me. I don't think 
my being American and feeling committed and passionate about that is something that needs to be transcended. This is my country and I have to have allegiance. I have to know what my different levels of loyalty are. And I think you generally agree with that probably, right? Yeah, of course. Um, And so when I see, like, and I think we share this concern, when I see people who are always in this mode of wanting to transcend these small, what they consider to be these small attachments, I just, I can't relate to it because, and, and it's in moments of crisis that I'm reminded of those smaller concentric circles of allegiance. Now, um, you know, you, you know, you made a, you made a reference to Mir to how you have a lot of these folks who say we're a fallen country. And, um, and I like this, and this is, it's a word that I often use as someone who works on the role of religion in public life, this idea of being fallen, of being broken by sin. And I'm comfortable with that kind of language as someone who is a believer. And as someone over time, I mean, we, we as Muslims don't really use the, the, the kind of language of brokenness by sin, but because I have a deep and profound respect for my Christian friends and colleagues, and I've learned so much from them about this idea of brokenness and how that can inform how we, how we engage in the world around us. And this idea of sin, I think, is very important as sin, but also metaphorically. Um, I, you know, yeah, we are we we are a country that is fallen in some sense because we have a tragic history. We have done terrible things. We have sinned. Of course, we have sinned. But this obsession with the fallenness of America that this is always the, for many analysts and writers and whatever, that this is the first and last thing for them. It, it colors everything they do and say about who we are. Um, even though I'm sympathetic to, to being fallen, I just feel like if that's how you actually approach international relations, that we are the sinful ones vis-a-vis others, when, let's be honest, I mean, other countries... Are, it's it's crazy to me that we are the fallen ones when we talk about China or we are the fallen ones when we talk about, I don't know, Belgium, for God's sake, and what they did in the... I mean, we are not, we are not always the terrible ones. And, I, and I, um, I know it's a hard thing to kind of, you know, we have to be aware of what we've done wrong and god knows that i've been so i've been outspoken in all of my work about the terrible things that we've done in the middle east and our support for authoritarian regimes but when everything you write is colored even in a moment of crisis even when you're talking about a virus which should shift the the attention to other things when you're always like you're always offering this initial disclaimer about how bad we are i'm like for God's sake, enough. Yeah, yeah. No, look. I, it's funny. It's funny where we where we intersect and where we uh, part ways. You know, I mean. Um, but it's interesting you say that. Where, where do you think we? Well, let me let me explain. I I I um. 
let me let me ask you. Let me explain by maybe by means of a question. Um, can you envision uh, one loving this country without thinking it is fundamentally exceptional? And now let me qualify by what I mean by exceptional, um, because I do believe that there is a kind of exceptionalism to America. But to me, the exceptionalism is kind of functional. Um, again, kind of kind of a, a a fortunate thing that seems to just keep bearing itself out. That uh, be it by design, by original lucky design, that we had some smart people that ended up building something that has stood the test of time and worked pretty well, tapped into certain truths about human nature and, and harnessed them in more positive ways than other than other ways. I agree with all of that. Um, but I, I I I recoil at this at the at the moral dimension of it, and I and yet and yet I still feel very strongly uh, American. I still feel very strongly that this is an incredibly great country, and it gets so many things right. It's just not it's not colored by this kind of transcendence, and I recoil and bristle bristle at. At again, not at you and how you express it, but this is where we part ways. I would mm. say, I at this idea of fallenness. Um, I think to me, what's interesting is that I I'm watching how this country, despite Trump, despite the failure of the Republican Party, which are grubby and shitty at <laughs> this point, it's still going to win. I think I still see it. I still see it coming out on top of all of this. Um, and 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 I, I I reject a lot of this sort of moralizing stuff. That's um, why I'm not a neoconservative. Why I don't believe in in exporting these sorts of things. And I, I think there, uh, it's an interesting subject to explore and delve into of why these things are good and how societies organize themselves to to again tap into these sort of very human things. But this is not a, a mission. This is not about making the world a better place. This is this is this thing that's happening, and America's an actor that's very successful. It's really interesting to study why it's so successful. Um, but it's too complicated, also, to have some sort of you know world improving mission. That's where you and I ultimately part ways. I think pretty fundamentally on foreign policy, on sorts of things. Why I'm not a neoconservative. Why I'm more sympathetic to a uh, a more detached. Call it a more political view of of the world, of history, um, and political meaning who's up, who's down. Not uh, and 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 let me just add as a coda here. This doesn't mean I don't recognize morality that there's no such thing or something like that. Obviously, I do. There is right and wrong. Um, I just think as an analytic framework that sets up a kind of morality play about everything. It's, it leads to terrible things not the least of which is a kind of fetishization on the left for these universals that then make really fundamental category mistakes about how the world works, what human society is, what nations are, what meaning human beings actually derive. It actually ends up departing from a lot of the wisdom that founded this country because it misunderstands humanity. Okay. Yeah, that's, those are a lot of, that's a lot there. Um, and here's maybe where I would try to, you can be a moralist without being a universalist. And this is where I find myself that I don't share 
the universalist pretensions of much of the left about some kind of imaginary globalism or socialist international or whatever it might be. At the same time, I think that um, you can be a moralist in foreign policy, and I know that's a bad word for some people, but for me it's not. And this has been an ongoing uh, uh, debate that we've had on, on the podcast. For me... For me, some of it, it goes back to the where is the personal and where is the political. And, you know, I'm very open about this, that I, as an analyst and a writer, um, I write about things that are, as we all do in some sense, but I guess I'm more explicit about it, that there, and some people don't like it, whatever, but there is I in my writing, and I don't, I don't shrink from the I, because I don't know how I can talk about the things that are important to me without talking about the I, right? So if I'm talking about why I think supporting democracy in the Middle East is important, I can make a very dispassionate policy argument about it and why I think it's in American national interest in the long run and all that. And that's a that's certainly a part of it, a big part of it even. But at the same time... I think about things like why like why do I do what I do? Why do I wake up in the morning deciding to focus on some things rather than others? I do think about 20 or 30 years from now, God willing, or whenever it might be, what do I want to have said that I've done? And some of this has to do with my belief in God, that I... You know, I think about what life is and what we leave. And I want to feel that I fought for something, that I believed in something that was meaningful and that was in line, even though as I'm not the most religious person, but something that was in line with what God wanted us to be. God wanted us to be in some sense, not in a fully like liberal sense, but in some sense, in some basic human sense, God wanted us to be free. God wanted us to make choices and to have agency. And God did not want us to be under dictatorship because dictatorship distorts the human spirit and distorts the, um, the innate disposition of humankind. And that is contrary to God's plan. Now, I know that's a lot of like God talk right there and probably more than we've done in most of our episodes. But um, I, don't, I don't know, does anything I've just said kind of, uh, what, what do you think about what I just said? Um, <laughs> I know. I, how, do you, how, do you, how do you parse uh, what you said 10 minutes ago about, about universals and that? Who is who is the we in in God here? I mean that that seems to be the big tension when you talk in those terms, and then yet you say that your 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 concentric circles of of sympathy, um, you know, are concentric and and more powerfully. I mean, it's not irreconcilable, but I'd love to hear you sort of try and reconcile yeah, them a little God, bit. God is part of God is part of what I consider America to be. So why do I con? What's one of the reasons that I consider? America to be actually exceptional, and I'm, I'm not going to shrink from that either, is because we are a country that respects 
the place of God in the broader scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the many of the founders were not explicitly Christian in the sense that they did not all necessarily believe in the divinity of Christ, but were they generally deists or theists in the sense that they felt that there was there was a God and that that led to some kind of moral clarity and a, a sense of justice that was derived from the existence of God, yes. Um, so in in that respect, um, and that's one reason that there was a, a deep understanding that religion could not be pushed out of the public sphere, that it was part of who we are as Americans, even for those who don't believe, that there is a kind of cultural... God consciousness, even if you don't believe in God. Um, so I guess that's what I, that, that to me is tied to the national project and to the sense of when I am proud of being American, it's one reason that I don't necessarily, like I'm not French, obviously, but one reason that I see the American project as being different from the French project in that God is part of who we are in a way that it's not part of who the French are. It's not part of who the Chinese are. So there are other nationalisms and other national projects where God does not figure. Right, right. No, I mean, again, um, it's it's uh, just to get us back on, on, on the, you know, the initial question. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, I... I we because, definitely because, went on a little bit of a tangent. No, no, I don't think so, because, I mean, but we are running out of time, Shadi. It's been an hour. Is there such thing as running out of time when we're on quarantine? In in, in, in coronavirus, uh, no. Actually, you know, maybe maybe as a coda now, rather than, than uh, trying to tie it up with a bow. I mean, one thing I'm keen on doing in the time of coronavirus, and as you said, what is time? <laughs> um, I, I, you know... Uh, we started talking about uh, you tweeting out questions about what we should do. I'm 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 intrigued about the idea of trying to to not change up what we're doing. I think we should still maybe do exactly what we're doing, but seeing if like doing it in in real time, not necessarily even uh, soliciting interactions, or maybe it's a different thing where we do is try and solicit interactions. I'm I'm keen to try different things, or maybe separate things that are tied to what we're doing right now. I feel like this is really fun. I don't know. This hour went by really quickly. Yeah. Um, in a time of, it of coronavirus, does. it does always go by quickly. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued about trying other things. That to me has been one of the, the weird things about uh, the last. I guess we're in the end of week three of this thing at this point. Um, has been uh, how social relations are getting reordered, and uh, you know, I work at a magazine. Um, we're doing a lot of experimenting with how to convene and how to get people together, how to keep our community together. It, it strikes me there's a there's just like an opportunity right now to uh, to really try stuff and play with things. Um, so I don't know. I, I I hope I hope we can also try stuff and play with things. Um, you know. Yeah, let's do it. So we could even you know as we talked about earlier, we can do something where we announce a live stream where we do it live. With all uh, and and people can just hear us doing our thing without any kind of like not that we edit much anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean honestly nothing. Almost I just, nothing. I, yeah. I, I pick I pick the entry point for the the good cold open. Exactly. Apart from that, 
But, you know, I could even be, it would be kind of cool. I don't know. I Like, I, I do like the idea of building community because people are wanting that, longing for that even. I think we all want more of it. Yeah. And if we could just be like on, you know, uh, I don't have Twitter on my phone, so I'd have to bring out, that's that's a rule for me. But on my laptop to see like, hey, in real time, we're talking. And if people are watching the or listening to the live stream, to see what they, how they feel, what they're provoked by. And we already have people who are um, committed listeners. Some of them are friends of ours. Some of them are friends of ours that we don't know in real life, that we just know on Twitter. Yeah. And it, it does mean a lot to me when people who I've never met, and I feel like I've come to know them because they, the, this podcast has connected with them. It's touched them in some way. And... Um, you know, we're at we're at a time where uh, community. You know, it, these the small things matter more, and I I like engaging with people when people are when they respond to something we've said on the podcast and they say, "Hey, Shadi, hey, Demir, we're fans of the podcast." I mean, that really does mean a lot. Yeah, to I me agree. at least, yeah. I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, let's do it. But in the meantime, let's play some Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yes. Mortal Kombat. Oh. <laughs> All right, Shadi. See you next time. See you, Demir. Bye.